The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. I've proved you or and or. I always thought an or was a boat thing until I heard that song, and it means over and over and over, and that is true. God is good. All right, well, why don't you find your way to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where we'll be today as we start out and continue through our study of the gospel of Mark. And uh, just a couple commercials aside, I just want to thank everyone who participated yesterday, who was here or helped. Uh, special shout-out, and they don't like these shout-outs. Darlene, I'm winking at you as I say it. Uh, Miss Darlene and Miss Christy Efferman for helping with our food at the Foundations Conference yesterday. Thank you for providing us lunch, ladies. And Nelson Nisley, wherever you are, brother, I'm sure you're back there somewhere hiding out. There's Nelson. Nelson, thank you for being our technological savior in the lowercase sense. And uh, we have the savior, but you were the technological savior yesterday. So thank you, uh, brother, for doing that. And uh, uh, so yesterday we had the Foundations Conference, had a couple of uh, local speakers come, and those will be posted online hopefully later this weekend or later today. Uh, on that same note, next Sunday, and this has been long standing in, in, in uh, just giving a break with all the busyness of the season. Uh, I've asked Nelson to preach next week. So Nelson, you're going to be sharing the word with us, I believe, brother. I don't know what you're sharing yet, but I know it'll be good. Uh, you already started sermon prep as of Monday. So you get two weeks of sermon prep. Does that mean it's double the length, Nelson, I think, or something like that? Sure. Do, yeah, yeah, that works. That, that's good. So prepare for a three-hour sermon next week, and Nelson will bring it to you. Uh, so brother, thank you for doing that very, very much. Uh, just as a, and also side note, uh, j- folks, just thank you for being praying for our church. Uh, there's been a lot of needs that have come up this last week, so thank you for your faithful prayers for our church and all that that, that goes with that. Well, I'm going to read off some lyrics to a song, and many of you were alive when this came out, and if you were, that's okay, because this was a, actually a good era. But today we're going to look at a very good thing about good people and Jesus, and the, this is going in a direction that, well, we'll get there, but Hear these lyrics and tell me if you know who this is. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly again. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times are a changes. Does anyone know who that is? That's Bob Dylan. Yes, it is. Bob Dylan was 20-something when he wrote that song, and at 77, I think he is, he's still selling songs. If you were alive at that time, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, and, uh, and that's okay. But how many of you remember hearing this song growing up? Anyone? A few hands go up? Yeah. Bob Dylan was writing about a time when things were a-changing. In the 60s, things were a-changing. Things are still a-changing today, to use that word. It's been 50 years, 50 years, 53 years, actually, since that song was written. And it's interesting that the same issues that are back then are still the same issues that mostly are today. There's still marches on Washington. There's still issues of racial strife. Uh, The older generation is still worried about the younger generation, and the younger generation is still worried about the older generation. So it cuts both ways. And, you know, we often say the more things change, the more they will stay the same. Whether it's a new sermon series at church or moving to a new part of the country, people want change. And sometimes it doesn't come at the pace we want it. And it's a frustration that with the new, it doesn't seem much different than 
the old. And we're, that theme is going to carry us through our verses today. A change-in. Things are a change-in. And it reminds me of a great verse that many of you know from an old 60s song. I was in, a, I was in an oldies rock thing this week in sermon prep, I guess. But it says in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, to everything there is a season, time for every purpose under heaven. Many of you are going to get your drum, you're going to get your air guitars out and start singing along as we go through. But you know, sometimes the new and improved, for instance, the new and improved cereal just takes like the same old stuff, doesn't it? It's added a little less sugar, perhaps. And, but change is important. Imagine the problems you currently face that are stretching out in, pro- in front of you. And imagine if there was no possibility of changing those situations. How would you feel? You would feel pretty bent up and out of shape. And I don't, ble- I don't blame you if that's how you feel. Because it's important that things change, isn't it? Do you agree with that or not? Is it important things change? Maybe. It depends on what it is, maybe. Uh, if, it, if it's important that uh, your, your employer treats you nicely and that's a good change, that's a good thing. If it's important that the Bible changes, well, we would say that's obviously not a good thing, right? It's not a good change. There are some good and there are bad. But why don't we just adopt, and adopt a hopeless attitude about change and that is never disappointed? Why, why don't we just say, well, what's going to happen is going to happen and that's how life is. Well, friends, some here don't have a good answer to that question, but the passage today shows us that the possibility of real change does exist. And not just any change, but spiritual change, something that is new and good. And our big idea today comes out of that very fact. You've often heard it said, how many of you heard this before, that Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. You've heard that before? Many of you have, and that's true. But what the passage we're going to look at today in Mark, a kind of obscure passage in Mark, is going to tell us is that Christianity is not just a relationship, but as things change, it's an all-out life-embracing gospel religion that's founded and established on our union with Jesus. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, everything in your life will and should change. Now, that's scary for some of us, but Jesus is gracious enough to forgive us. He's powerful enough to change us and faithful enough to keep us to the end through all this change. So what are we going to look at today? Three things, and these are questions. This isn't the best outline, but they're the questions that come from the text. Because we're going to look at a topic today that was very real to the people of the first century, but for us Americans in middle-class America, it's probably not the case. But Three things that come out of this text. Time for something new. The questions we need to answer today and how this relates to your life about change is who fasted and who didn't. Well, Darren, that's not very changing. uh, Why is that important to me? Well, that's the second question. Why? And then the third question, you say, well, that's great. We're going to look at who fasted, who didn't, why, and then the big question, so what? Who cares? Because, friends, this passage that we have before us is so deep that you could preach years on it. And actually, some Puritans took a lot of time preaching through this passage, those old dead guys. But one thing that you find in here is often we just flip over it because to us, it doesn't have much significance. But where we were last week about Jesus being a friend of sinners informs where we head today. Because today, we're going to show how Jesus uses his power through parables to show that he alone can make the change that we should desire the most. That's where we're headed. So if you're able this morning, if you'll join us in standing in honor of God's word, uh, we will read Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Mark 2, 18 through 22. 
be reading out of the English Standard Version. And if you're visiting and don't have a Bible, that's page 835 in the blue Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, please feel free to take that. Would rather you have it than don't. So chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but the new wine is fresh wine. Uh, or is, the new wine is for the fresh wine skins. Friends, the change we're going to talk about today is not a political regime change. It's not a change of, uh, uh, you know, you got five more ounces in your favorite shampoo for free, which really wasn't free. They just upped the price, by the way, all that stuff. The change that we're talking about today is a spiritual change. And Jesus is going to challenge the institution of the Pharisees, those people we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. This friend of sinners that we looked at just a week ago is now ready to throw in another grenade, so to speak, and shake things up a little bit more. That's where we're headed today. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, we acknowledge the fact and we honor the fact, Lord, that your changes in our life are often uncomfortable. Father, they're often, uh, as we see it, unnecessary. But Father, all things to your glory, the, 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 the things that you put before us, the situations, the people, the, uh, the changing culture is all to make us more like Christ and all to make us, Lord, in your grace and strength and by your spirit to stand as ambassadors for Christ. Father, as we look at the change that you wrought through your son, we pray that you give us great wisdom. Father, let not my words, because Father, anyone can get up and blab for 45 minutes, but Father, we ask that your spirit would come in power, illumine our hearts, show us what we need to know today. Father, not only individually, not only as a family that may be here together, but also corporately as a church. For Father, this is your church, and we want you to be glorified. Father, thank you for these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So that is the big question that we're going to look at today. Uh, a few big questions. Who fasted? Who didn't? Why? And really, Darren, who cares? So what? What's the big point of all this? I mean, aren't there, I mean, Darren, aren't there better things to look at in the scriptures today? Friend, let me just say a quick aside here that this is the advantage of going verse by verse through the scriptures. This verse right here, I, I just did a, a quick survey. Sometimes it's, it's, it's interesting after I do my study to look at other pastors and say, did they go through this? And uh, sermonaudio.com, which is a very, if you're looking for third-party sermons, it's a great place to go to uh, hear God's word spoken conservatively. Uh, this was probably one of the most uh, obscure passages preached in the book of Mark. People just attach it to last week's sermon or skip over it or just make it a, a note. So I'm grateful that although this doesn't seem to be that enthralling, that Christ can be glorified even through this question. So uh, that is the good thing, because just like you as parents sometimes don't always take your kids to the theme park, because who can afford that? Well, you have a season pass, that might help too. But just as you don't take your kids to the theme park every day, so too, as we study God's word, it's not always exciting, but it is biblical. And that's something I've had to reexamine in my heart this week as well as I've looked at this, because really, who fasted, who didn't? Why is this important? Well, let's get there as we go. First thing I want you to say is the, see is this, is first off, who fasted, who didn't? First, fasting is not a bad idea. Do you realize that our first president 
George Washington is, was fasting during the, the Revolutionary War. Martin Luther, both the theologian and Martin Luther King Jr., the political activist, fasted. You may have fasted. Rachel, just out of curiosity, if you feel comfortable, have you fasted before for spiritual reasons before? Uh, s- several hands have gone up. I know that, that sounds like an odd dynamic, but it happens. We do this all the time. It's not a bad thing. People have found it to be useful. Actually, the Jews had a, had a day of celebration for this on the seventh, uh, tenth day of the seventh month called Yom Kippur. We know that today, the Day of Atonement, where they would remember their sins before God. And there are several other passages in the New Testament and Old Testament that speak to fasting uh, and going before God for a special word. Fasting is not just, uh, 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 and we'll talk about this tonight, fasting is not just Lent or something like that on a Christian calendar. Fasting is a specific day, specific time, specific time period set aside where you forego food or, or, or nourishment to focus on spiritual realities. The Pharisees here fasted twice a week. They fasted of all days on Monday and Thursday. Now their calendar was a little bit different than ours, but we know that from Luke 18, because if you remember that story between the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee said, I'm glad I'm not like that guy because I fast twice a week. So even fasting can become a badge of of pharisaical, pharisaical honor before the Lord. Even John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples did this very thing. John was an odd man. He ate honey and locusts and lived out in the desert, but he still fasted. And he came with a message of repentance. Even our Savior fasted. We know that to be true in Matthew 4 and other places for 40 days, especially during his temptation. So why is it important that we fast? Well, friends, uh, I just want to give you a couple more historical notes that early Christians, even in Acts, Christians fasted at Antioch. They prayed and fasted and they set aside Paul and Barnabas through the work of the missionaries. And the, 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 the missionary journey exploded because of that. Fasting is uncommon in our day, but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. But let me be very cautious and say this, friends. As Baptists, we do not follow the, the Catholic calendar, the old Catholic calendar about Lent. And you, you join us online at Facebook 830 tonight, and we'll answer that question. So I want to be very clear that fasting does not make one righteous before God. Sometimes we believe if we set aside time for God that we're doing a good thing, and that's true. But fasting does not make us more acceptable before God on our own. That is what Christ did, amen? That is what he did. Christ did that for us. So why would they fast in these days? Why? Why would they fast? They would fast because they were struggling with sin. They would fast because they felt coldness to God. They felt unconnected to him. They would fast because of a big decision. They would fast because of the nation as a whole was on the fritz and they needed to correct that. They would fast to express concern for the work and repentance and pray for the needs of others. They would do all these things. So fasting is very, very helpful. And, you know, imagine this. I mean, what if we made major changes in our church? What if next week you came and I was, uh, I don't know, I, you know, we, we just made some major changes in our church. How would you feel about that? You would be on edge. If we changed the order of service in one week without telling you, many of you would, would be very out of sorts, right? Wait, we're doing the sermon first and then five songs and then the offering? How does that work? You would think that's kind of odd, wouldn't you? Well, it's kind of odd because in major changes back in this day, who fasted, who didn't, fasting was almost a prerequisite before anything major changed in the society or the church. And can you imagine how these people felt then when Jesus came to them and said, oh, by the way, I'm not going to fast with my disciples. Say, what? 
But Jesus, we've always done it that way. How dare you? Who are you? Who are you? You're the friend of sinners. You can't say that, Jesus. But can you imagine what it would be like? You would feel weird if we came in next week and I'm dressed in a clown suit and singing Elvis songs up here. And uh, you would think that's kind of funny because Darren can't sing and Darren is a clown anyway and he definitely can't strum a guitar. So all those things. But can you imagine how Jesus doing all this work and he wasn't fasting? I mean, Jesus is doing amazing things and the Pharisees come to him and say, you're not fasting. How dare you? That's crazy. That's a major change. Now, again, Jesus is not against fasting. See Matthew 6, 16 through 18. But controversy always rolls through the religious world when change happens, doesn't it? It really does. And change is never something that people like. So Jesus, if you, if you go back to those verses before, they asked this question last week. He ate with the, uh, the he, he reclined, verse 15, chapter 2, at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him and his disciples. So Jesus is already upending things. Jesus didn't care about custom, friends. He wanted something new and happy to go with this, so to speak. He wanted to change things because he wanted to show them that keeping the rules they did, as honest as they may be, turned into a religion in itself. And Jesus' sermons are giving with stunning force. I mean, leopards are cleansed. Sinners are welcome. Next week, uh, well, a couple weeks from now, the Sabbath will be refashioned to not be a day of bondage. I mean, who is this Jesus guy? How, who, does he have the gall and the nerve to change everything? Friend, I'm glad he did, aren't you? Because by changing everything, he made everything possible. It was an exciting time to be with in this. And so in his public ministry, who fasted, who didn't? We've never seen, uh, they have never seen Jesus fast as far as we know. He, he went to the desert for that. And that's how gossip started because he did something unheard of. He was scandalous. Oh, how dare he not show his fasting before other people, that Jesus guy? That silly goose. What was he thinking? That silly goose should be fasting just like the rest of us. And he comes back to the Pharisees and he gives them two examples that we'll get to in just a minute. Friends, but I want to be very clear where I'm headed with this. Say, Darren, what does all this mean? It means this. Let me fix this thing. I've lost all the cord to it. And you say, Darren, that's great, but what does this have to do with me? Friends, this passage is not about fasting. This is not a sermon about how you should fast. This is a sermon to remind us that when Jesus didn't fast, he was shocking in his religion. Our Savior is not how we often think he is, although he fasted on the side. You say, Darren, what is the point? What are you trying to say? Great question. Friends, a cross Jesus calls us to bear is never a convenient thing. Jesus bore a cross of not fasting so the Pharisees could see it to teach them a point. And the point he was trying to get to them and get across to them is that what he was bringing to them was a change. Jesus was bringing to them a very true word. And that word was, you have trusted in your religion too long. Now I, the living God, am here to change all that and make it new. And friends, God may call you similarly to stand up in ways within the church, outside the church, at your house, in your employment, wherever you are, in ways that you may never know God has called you to do it. Bearing the cross is never a convenient thing. Just like loving people, you know, isn't it hard? Wouldn't it be nice that every time someone asks you for help, they do it within the window? 
that you want them to. Oh, wait, my favorite show's on from 8 to 9, but I have time for you from 9 to 10. Don't call until then. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't you imagine every ER would, imagine if the ER did that. Imagine if the ER said, oh, you have an emergency, but the Super Bowl's on. We can't help you until we see Tom Brady win it all in the most dramatic way ever. (laughs) Carrying a cross is never a convenient thing, but think about that. What would you do if Quick Trip wasn't open 24 hours and Walgreens and all those places? You would have a fit. You have a fit when Chick-fil-A closes on Sunday. Come on, let's be honest about this. (laughs) How would you handle yourself? Jesus brings to them, and, and, and he will answer their question, who fasts and who doesn't? But friends, it is a reminder to us that when standing on truth, it is never a convenient thing. You will be put in situations where you can't prepare. Many of you are like myself. You like to have your answers prepared, your, your manuscripts before you, all those things. And you want to do it in a prepared way. God may put you in a situation much like he was here with a random question, just a slingshot question around the corner that says, why don't you do this? Friends, that's why 1 Peter 3 reminds us that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us with gentleness and respect. Because loving someone the way most convenient is not the way to do it, but loving someone and standing on truth the way God calls it is never convenient. Who fasted, who didn't? I think the reflection question is, is your Christianity convenient? Is ours convenient? Look, friends, I cannot be there for you all the time. I am a pastor. I'm not a super pastor. I'm not a super saint. I'm young and have a lot of energy, more than, more than some. Uh, but at the end of the day, when I'm not around, who fills that void? When Matt's not around, when, when Pastor Matt's not around, Pastor Gilbert's not around, who fills that void? Christ does. When you're called upon to stand in a situation like Jesus was being questioned on something that's always been the norm, and you know there has to be change that has to happen, will you bear that cross? Is your Christianity a convenient Christianity, or is it one that is ready to go at any part? Is your heart set to God? So that's who fasted and who did it. That's the question they asked. Jesus, we're fasting. Why aren't you? So here's the question, the second question I want you to ponder. Why? Why? Why did these fast and Jesus didn't fast? Well, he gives you two examples, and let's read those again. And if you remember our study of Mark, we know that Mark is a very succinct, he's kind of the cliff notes version of the other gospels, but here's what he says in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, he didn't argue with them about fasting, oh, hey, didn't you see me here, didn't you see me there? He just goes right into a truth with a parable, as he often does. Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and from them they will fast in that day. And no one sews a piece of unshot cloth on an old garment. Friends, what is Jesus getting at? Doesn't that just seem odd? Have you ever felt that way when you read the scriptures? Sometimes we want to be so, we're like, Jesus, I get you until you went into that story. That's sometimes how we feel. That's at least how I feel. What, Jesus, can't you just answer him straight? He does sometimes, but often he gives parables. What Jesus is doing here is talking about false religion. Jesus is not interested, friends, in answering about who should be fasting, who shouldn't be fasting necessarily. He is interested in addressing the change that they need, the Jews need to see, that it's not the same old, same old. The God-man, Jesus Christ, has condescended, come down, and because of that, we can never be the same again. So Jesus comes to them to make sure that they understand that he came to save sinners and not the self-righteous that he came to bring gladness and not sadness, and he came to introduce the new, not patch up the old system of doing things. I hope that makes sense. So the first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus informs us that he did not come to be just a further extension of 
the Jews necessarily in the law sense. But what he came to do is to turn the law upside down so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And he does this in two ways. First, I want you to see in verse 21, he says that false religion is like an old garment that needs to be discarded. Full disclosure, how many of you have clothes, husbands especially, that you know you need to get rid of, your wife is nagging you about, and you have not gotten rid of said clothes? Anyone? Many. Ladies, how many of y'all need to like completely like think about getting rid of your wardrobe because you know that there's too many clothes in your closet? Amen? You know that's the case. And you know that when you try to take something old and patch it up, even as skilled of hands that we have with something new, that it's eventually going to tear because it's not the original fabric. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here, folks. Jesus is attempting to unite, the, he says, attempting to unite the gospel he brings, that is by grace alone and Christ alone, with the old law system can never coexist. You cannot have... Uh, a patch of old clothing and, and show, you know, sew on a, a little patch on there without eventually it tearing quicker and, and easier than before. And when the new piece becomes wet, it'll shrink, it'll tear away from the old, and it'll make an even larger hole and a worse tear. Friends, that is what Jesus is trying to say. He's not concerned about who's fasting, who's not. He's concerned that they are missing the change that's happening right before their eyes. With the coming of Jesus, everything is new. With the coming of Jesus, the old was not bad, but it's no longer usable. With the coming of Jesus, it has been replaced by something better. To continue to try and prop up the law when the greatest man, the God-man Jesus, is in your house, turns back to a false religion. To do so is to create and perpetuate a false religion, one that cannot save but only dream. And friends, that's what all the cults do. That's what every false teaching does. They try to prop themselves up because their Jesus is not big enough to handle the sin that they bring to him. Friends, I am grateful that our Jesus, you can take, and I'm so encouraged by this yesterday, and some of this wording is from yesterday at our conference, but I'm so grateful that you can take every day to remember that the love of Christ for you has not changed based on how well you performed religiously today. But do you realize that there are a lot of people right now in the Lenten season who trust that if they fast from... M&M's. I love M&M's. They fast from Darren Pizza, yeah, you know, those things, that they will somehow win brownie points with God. It's not what Jesus is saying here, friends. Jesus is reminding us that false religion is like an old garment that needs to be discarded because nothing can prop Jesus up. Jesus is the prop himself, so to speak. He holds it all together. He is the show. He is the the creator of the show. The the greatest drama that ever happened is that when God came down, he saved sinners such as us, sinful as we are. That is the greatest drama ever made. So he says it's like an old garment. He also says that false religion is like an old wineskin that can't contain new life in Christ. Let's just cut the air. This is not a sermon about, uh, about wine and anything else, okay? <laughs> we'll chase that rabbit another day. Many of you have asked that question. We'll do that and ask the pastor another time. But in the ancient world, the skins of goats were stripped off as neatly uh, as possible and tanned so they could be filled with wine. They would carry the wine with that, very watered down as it was. And the natural elect, um, kind of elastic feel it had to it was an easy way to hold that wine as it came together. Because as you know, with wine and things and grapes, they ferment, right? So it expands out. You need new wineskins to cover that, uh, that, that wine without losing the wine. 
However, if you put wine in old wineskins that have already become brittle and weak, just like you would tie on an old rope to something and try and pull it, what's going to happen to it? It's going to break, right? That's pretty straightforward. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you can't put new wine that's going to ferment and grow in the hot Middle Eastern sun, so to speak, and ferment and all those things and expand out with all those gases and and all that stuff, or it's going to blow up. It's going to burst, and you're going to be unhappy because you lost your container and you lost your, 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 your liquid. So what is he saying here? What is Jesus trying to get about? Basically the same thing as before. He is saying that the radical new era of Jesus is coming and that Jesus is the new patch and the new wine. Jesus is not an attachment. He's not an addition. He's not an appendage to the status quo. Jesus can't be integrated or contained by pre-existing structures, even in Judaism or the Torah or the synagogues or all the laws of the Pharisees. Jesus is setting up change to a new system. Friends, his contemporary exclaimed, look back at verse 10 of chapter 2 if you scroll back there in your Bible. Isn't it true that a couple weeks ago when my friend Brian came, they said when the the paralytic walked, they said, but that you may know that on the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home and picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Friends, that's what Jesus came to do. If your religion, whatever that is, is just a continuation of everything else that's been tried before, then can I submit to you, you know not the God of the scriptures. If your religion, whatever that is, has to reinvent itself time and time again to be found with new grace time and time again, then friends, you've missed the point. Jesus gives in himself devotion and allegiance to none but God. But like sowing a new patch or putting new wine into old wine skins, Jesus is in their already full agendas and their lives. And he's saying, look, guys, I'm here. I'm ready to radically change everything that's before me. Friends, the ultimate purpose, and Amy will put this up for us, the ultimate purpose in your life is to show forth this very life we've talked about. The ultimate purpose of life is to show that Jesus is more precious than life. Friends, we have so many things that we do as a church, and I'm speaking broadly as a church, that we do that are so much in tradition that we miss Christ so often. Would you pray that as you do church each week, that this is not just another check mark on your list, that you come prepared, that your heart is, Lord, show me my sins so that I can make much of you. Jesus, be big. Jesus, make me know that you are my one singular passion. Jesus, from day one, Help me to understand that it's not about my religious system, but it's about you. And friends, let me be very careful here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have rules in the church or things like that. Jesus isn't saying that. But what Jesus is saying and communicating to the Pharisees, he he says, why is this important? Because if Christ isn't in the center of all those things that you do in the church or all those things you do in your family or all those things you do, whatever you do, then you've missed the point of what he's trying to say. This isn't about fasting. It's that Jesus is the change that is wrought in every corner, even the dusty ones of your life and mine. Jesus Christ is the reason. He's the goal. He's the intent. He's the purpose. He's the terminus. He's the consummation and the culmination of every molecule that moves through this universe. I mean, think of it like this. Baseball season is upon us. And if you're not a sports fan, I apologize to you. 
my wife graciously reminds me of how often I refer to the royals, chiefs, and all those types of people. So I apologize. But can you imagine? We're in spring training. Can you, and this is, I couldn't find one of the royals, but Amy's going to put this up. This is the hated San Francisco Giants, right? Uh, the team that beat us in 2014. But can you imagine for a second if the manager of the Giants got up on spring training and he was going around with the carpet vacuum, do, 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 do. He's going around, and he's dusting off the chairs and all these things. And all, the, all these big men, you know, big burly mix of baseball player, the, the big muscle-bound guys like Nick up here. You know, he's just going around. He's sweeping the carpet. He's doing that. Hey, coach, what's the game plan for you? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I got to dust some more over here. Wait, who just, who just went to the bathroom? I just cleaned the toilets. You know, you would look at that stuff and say, that's silly. He's the manager. He shouldn't be concerned with such things. Why is he doing that? Friends, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were coming to Jesus and saying, we're more concerned about why you're not fasting in public than realizing right before them was the greatest gift that they could ever have. You wouldn't expect a baseball manager to stand up and say, boy, I really wish we'd make this color carpet fuchsia pink. Where's it been all my life? Or bring back the shag carpet from 1973, you know, green. You would say that's not in your job description. Friends, and this is what Jesus is reminding these people about. He's reminding them that the gospel itself is greater than their traditions. That everything that they do should go back to who he is. That it's not just, oh, hey, I know God through relationship because I fast once a week. It's I know God in every part of my life because he is, he is worthy to be in every part of my life. That's why if a church based or if someone coming to a church bases on the style of worship they have or this amazing Darlene 1981 on this carpet, 1984, it's been a while, early 80s carpet. I love this carpet and uh, you should have seen it when we cleaned it last year. I heard it was, yeah, it took a while. We hadn't steam cleaned it in a while. So God is good. But if you come to a church and you say, Darren, I'm not like those Pharisees. Friends, we do this all the time. I'm going to go to this church because they have this. I'm going to go to that pastor because he talks like this. I'm going to go to this service because it fits between the Chiefs game and my nap and everything else in between. We do this, don't we? Why is this important? Because, friends, sometimes we are no better than the Pharisees because we want Jesus to fit our perfect picture of who he is when he comes on the scene and drops that grenade in and says, boom, a bigger, a better and I'm much more able to do this than you are. Friends, this Jesus, demons obey him, he heals the sick, he forgives sins, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. All right, so you're tracking with me, right? Who fasted, who didn't? Why is that important? And now the big question, say it with me, so what? <laughs> Darren, that's great. Again, I, I'm, I'm with you a little bit, but so what? I mean, seriously, Darren, so what? Sunday, we want to know more about this, so what? Friends, with Jesus and his life and his ministry, his atoning death and resurrection, everything changes, and it changes. There's no compromise between Judaism and Christianity. There's no compromise between a works religion and faith religion. There's no compromise between my old life and my new life. Jesus came to usher in the change that every one of us wants, but very few of us want to accept. He doesn't want us to ignite or unite our old life with our new. He says, throw it away. Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. You are a new creature in Christ. Put to death the things of the past. Put to death the things that you hold on to that make you feel more religious. Seek after Christ. Seek after Christ. 
Jesus would establish a new covenant in his blood and the law would be written on the hearts, but now we have the Holy Spirit. And by using these very illustrations, but with the new skin or the new garment and the, the old and the new wineskins, Jesus is saying that there is no one greater than he himself. It is it, the buck, to use Sherman's words, the buck stops with him. And that is it. I did not plan on using this illustration uh, but yesterday, Jared Wilson, one of our speakers, shared this great illustration with us. And he talked about a man in California who uh, came to a men's conference he was speaking at. And those of you who know who heard this, but the short of it is, this is a big man, a mountain of a man. Uh, and they warned him, don't go to this man, he's going to cause trouble. And of course, the man approached him and he had one of those big uh, Jack, I don't know if Jack Kimbrell's here, but the, the Jack Kimbrell beards, if you know Jack, that goes down, you know, but I mean, just mountain of a man. And he was having trouble with his wife. And Jared, the speaker yesterday, mentioned, he said, you know, this man was asking me every strategy to be a better husband, every strategy to do it better, to, to be a better person, to, to, to make my wife stop, well, frankly, to make my wife stop nagging me, I think was the point, if you were there yesterday. And he said, Jared, how did you overcome this in your life? Because you've had a testimony of doing things differently. How did you get to the point where you put up with your wife? <laughs> Oops, <laughs> bad question. And Jared said, friend, it's not the religion, it's the heart that needs to change. Because with the heart change comes all those other behaviors. Why do I do the things I do for my wife? Because Christ died for my soul. Why do I do the things I do as a Christian? Not because I have to, not because that's what we've always done, but because Jesus radically changed me. And because of that, I want to do it. Do you see that difference this morning, Tower View? The Pharisee said, this is what we're going to do because that's what we've always done. And Jesus, oh, by the way, if you don't do that, you're not good enough for us. Jesus says, yeah, I fast, but I'm not going to tell you when or how. But when I do things, I do things because the living God has come with a better message, the greatest message, which is the gospel message. Friends, religion will tell you, work, work, work. Jesus will say, I did the work and it was sufficient once for all and that is enough. I pray today, as, as there's no secret that in God's Providence Foundations Conference was yesterday, it reminded us that, that the gospel informs everything that we do. And friend, if you are sick of hearing the gospel preached, then I don't know what else to say, because guess what you're going to be doing in heaven forever? Forever. Uh, we were talking about this in Sunday School. Don, uh, I was picking on Don Harrison, because Don, we're starting a softball team here in the spring, and I was teasing Don, he's going to have a perfect batting average for once in his life. Praise the Lord, Don. Uh, and all those good things. What are you going to be doing in heaven? You're not going to be, with respect to audio adrenaline, you're not going to be, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big house, you know, uh, all those things. Maybe, friends, I don't know. Those are subcategories to my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is my faith becomes sight, and I see Jesus Christ, the glorious risen one, on his throne, ruling over all things, and that's what excites my soul. It's not the golden streets. It's not even those pearly gates, which is a swing on one of those pearly gates. Guys, if we get up there, we get up there, let's try that, but let's do that after we realize that Jesus is sufficient enough to be there. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and Jesus isn't enough reason for you to go to heaven, then you do not have the right Jesus. And that's exactly what he's telling him here. Friends, what is the pastor's job in all this? So what, pastor? That's great. That's great platitudes, but here's what the pastor's job. J.I. Packer said it this way, better words than I could ever mention. He said, look, he said, the pastor's job, Matt's job, Gilbert's job, my job is to proclaim the faith, not to provide entertainment, to feed the sheep rather than amuse the goats. In too many churches, friends, we've gotten to the place 
where entertainment has little to do with worship style, but everything has to do with the heart of the worshiper, and that's good. But it also, we have to remember that the Pharisees were doing the same old, same old, same old, same old because they were afraid of change. What was that change? Was it a methodology change? Was it a scripture change? Not at all. It was a heart change. It was a heart change. Friends, in too many churches, exposition has been replaced with entertainment, theology with theatrics, and drama with the redemption of, with just drama. And that's it. Friends, as I was closing and in reflection on this conference yesterday, I had to ask myself, okay, Darren, that's great. But is our church on that board? Are we going that way? Friends, I want to leave you with just six quick little statements and quick little things before we take the Lord's Supper, if you will. How does this relate to us as a church and you as a family? Well, Friends, because the gospel is the greatest thing that Jesus shared, it can manage being the burden of the one main thing of the church. Jesus didn't come to them and say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the God man, but if you fast, yeah, I'll fast a little bit, that's cool, but no, Jesus said, look, it's me or the highway. Am I enough for you? Am I good enough for you? And because the gospel is infinitely rich, we have the power that we need. The gospel, nothing poses a threat to the gospel, friends. Nothing, nothing that we have and talk about in Jesus will ever pose a threat. The laws of the Pharisees were not enough for anything to change in Jesus' world. Jesus said, you want to do more? I'll show you some more. Let me twist your logic a little bit more. As a church, I pray that we always remember that from the pulpit and from diapers to decisions, everything we do goes back to what Jesus did for us. Family man, that goes for you as well. Husband, the reason you love your wife is because Christ died for you. Wife, the reason you submit to your husband biblically, not culturally, please hear that, friend. Wives, you are to submit to your husbands in a unique way, the Bible says, but that is not slavery, that is freedom for you, and you do that because Christ died for your soul. Friends, let's not let anything else overtake the one main thing of the church. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Don't chase rabbits. Focus on that. Second, and I think this is what the Pharisees were after. They were after their own, they were after their own, uh, for lack of a better word, their own 15 minutes of fame. Gimmicks are the last resort of a church that's given up on the gospel. You say, Darren, how does that relate to the Pharisees and all this stuff? Do you realize that the Pharisees created laws upon laws upon laws because they felt by doing those laws, they were doing a service back to God and to the people they served. But it wasn't Jesus who called them out and said, basically, look, they would go and pray in public and do all these things in public. But what God reminds us here, friends, we can have the best music, the best programs, the best communicators, the best uh, baseball team, which we will, by the way, because we are Tower View and we will win that league by God's grace, hopefully. We can have the best of all things, but without the gospel, without the power of the gospel, there's no power of God. And friend, that goes in your life as well. You can go to the best conferences, you can go to the best speakers, you can go to the best well-oiled church machine, and you can miss Jesus for the trees. Do you see what I'm saying? The Pharisees had all that, guys. They had the monopoly, and they missed that. Nothing can replace what God does through the gospel. Another reflection on this as a church, especially in light of our conference yesterday, when a church decides to pinpoint on the biblical gospel, it will lose people. I want you to think about that for a second. Friend, we, have, we, have, we are proudly Southern Baptists despite sin in our history and things that we need to correct even now as a convention, and that's a whole discussion for brighter minds than myself that are involved in all that. But one thing I can say is this. 
We submit our attendance records. Judy, does, Judy loves this every July. We have to go through a four-week process of looking at records and submitting numbers to people and all those things that be, and that's great. We need to count who's here, who's not, and that's good, and that's great. But when we center on the gospel, friends, there may be people who leave the church because they don't want that. Darren, aren't you as a pastor concerned about numbers? I am, and I should be, and we should ask questions about that. But again, if there's nothing that as a church we have done, and if we've made amends, we've, we've tried to do everything we can to right all wrongs. But if people leave because of the gospel, let them leave. Well, Darren, there goes your mega church. Amen. <laughs> we were going to build it in the back, but you know, we, we had to throw that on the fire. But guys, I am, I'm serious. If people leave because we take a stand on who Jesus is, and we are doing it lovingly, we're doing it boldly, we're doing it unitedly, so be it. Darren, it's been two years since we had you in view of call. If I had known that, I might not have voted for you. Okay. Fair enough. But friends, Jesus had to hold the disciples to count the cost. I'm not saying we should be headed as a church. I'm not saying we should be legalistic as a church. I'm not saying we shouldn't have hard conversations. We need to guard and, and do some things like that. But the gospel is offensive. If preached correctly, if lived correctly, if done correctly, the gospel will separate. Even your own family. Many of you are living that testimony right now. You have stood for Christ in your family, in your business, in things. You've lost business. You've lost friends. You've lost influence. Uh, let's be honest. We live in a social media world. You've lost social media friends over the gospel. It hurts. It separates. But what Jesus says, the change is a coming, and it's here. Three more things, and I'll end quickly. I know we need to get moving. Three more things. Friends, our Christian subculture's obsession with spiritual fads and religious hoaxes distract from the real power. Friends, I pray our church is never a church that has to be the latest, greatest, and next thing. The latest and greatest next thing is Christ. The only thing is who? Christ. Does this mean we don't do strategies? Please hear this clearly, not at all. Does this mean we don't need to evaluate? Not at all. Does this mean we don't prayerfully consider how we might reach a neighborhood through a strategy? Not at all. But friends, the power is in the gospel. And what made people riot in the cities in the old times, it was because people lived and shared the gospel. Second to last thing. The gospel is the power of salvation. So may we quit trusting our programs May we quit trusting our strategies, our visions, our props, our concepts, and our speaking abilities. Just don't let technology, don't let techniques, don't let transitions replace the gospel. That is the power of God. As a pastor, I look at that statement and my skin crawls. I'll be honest with you, it does. Because I've been a part of all these things. Friends, I'm not saying we chuck out every ministry. That's not what is being said today. But are we guarding ourselves of being more concerned with tradition, how things have always been done, than trusting the power of what God has done once for all in the gospel? I pray you see that. And as a Christian, let's stop believing that the gospel stops at coming to Christ. Friends, when you come to Christ, it is the power that you have for the rest of your life. Pastor, my heart is cold to Christ. Pray and remember and repent and believe the gospel. Christ, remind me of what you did for me. Pastor, I, I just don't see God working in my neighborhood. Then pray and pray the gospel for your neighborhood. 
Pastor, my family is torn apart because of sin in it. What do I do? Share the gospel, live the gospel, love the gospel, do all those things. Darren, you're just an old fuddy-duddy preacher in a 33-year-old body. Praise the Lord. And I don't say that to my own uplifting. I say that because, friends, if we ever beat a different drum, then we become those Pharisees who come to Jesus and say, why aren't you doing this? That's how we've always done it. What Jesus says is he's already done everything and the power is in him. Let's pray as we close out today. Father, I I pray as we enter the Lord's Supper here after a song and do all that we do, that all things are to your glory. Father, the, perhaps more than anything, the conference yesterday was like a knife in a, uh, the soul of this pastor. And Father, I pray, uh, there's, no, there's no doubt of timing of texts and things. Father, we plan these almost a year in advance that as we preach through this passage, Lord, you would remind our church of these things, mine especially, this pastor of these things. Father, but I thank you so much that the gospel is sufficient. Father, I thank you that it didn't just stop when we came to Christ, that through your spirit we live this reality every single day. Father, uh, we're not talking any major changes at our church in this sermon, but Lord, as we look at our own hearts, especially starting with my own, as we pray through things and talk through things and do things at this church, may they be glorifying to you. That's our prayer. Thank you for the heart of the people here who desire in all areas for that to happen. Father, guard us against false teaching. Guard us against uh, religiosity. Father, guard us against these things and help us to remember whatever we may discuss, whatever we may do, that Christ is central in all that we do. Father, it's so easy to say. It's so much harder to live, especially as we live one to another outside of this church and inside this church. But Father, guard the gospel deposit that you've given us in Christ. Father, we love you. Thank you so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll join me in standing as we sing before we partake of the Lord's Supper, amazing grace. Our chains are gone. Amazing.